Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Then the Scythians went on to invade Egypt, and when they were in Syria, which is called Palestine, Psammetichos, king of Egypt, met them, and by gifts and entreaties he turned them from their purpose, so that they should not advance further. And as they retreated, when they came to the city of Ascalon in Syria, most of the Scythians passed through without doing any damage, but a few of them who had stayed behind plundered the temple of Aphrodite Urania. Now this temple, as I find by inquiry, is the most ancient of all the temples which belong to this goddess. For the temple in Cyprus was founded from this, as the people of Cyprus themselves report, and it was the Phoenicians who founded the temple in Kithara, coming from this land of Syria. So these Scythians who had plundered the temple of Ascalon and their descendants forever were smitten by the divinity with a disease which made them women instead of men. And the Scythians say that it was for this reason that they were diseased, and that for this reason travelers who visit Scythia now see among them the affection of those who by the Scythians are called Inares.
hello there. I am Liv, and this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, (laughs) that Greek mythology podcast that really likes to dip its toes into other mythologies when the inspiration arises. And also, you know, that woman who's become so obsessed with the historical and cultural context of the myths that she's becoming a a bit over the top, if we're being honest. Uh, The way this podcast has changed uh, since its earliest episodes... Honestly, sometimes I still surprise myself, or I just take a step back and think, holy fuck, what have I created? I mean that in a good way, like it's just wild too, though. (laughs) Anyway, I know it's not quite the same uh, listening experience when it comes to these more contextual and historical style episodes, but they're super interesting and important, and while there's a finite number of Greek myths, and while I haven't quite reached it, I'm getting seriously close, and I'm not ending the show, so these types of fascinating diversions and details are necessary, as much as they are fucking awesome. So here we are. Today, as I promised last week when I regaled you with the absolutely unexpected background of the character of Adonis, I am here with the eastern origins of my personal favorite goddess, Aphrodite. Before we get into those incredible Eastern goddess origins and their connections to Aphrodite, though, I am here to remind you once more that I'm going to be doing a special anniversary Q&A episode of the podcast. This special week of episodes next week is really also a birthday present to myself uh, because it means I don't have to write a 5,000 plus word script, even though... I always uh, plan it for that reason, and then I forget that the amount of coordination that comes with the Q&A episodes and whatever. It's going to be fun, you guys. I love doing these. I love being able to answer your questions. It really opens up all these different new avenues of thought that I don't get with just my own brain. So I'm pumped. And as I tell you every year, I am the weirdo who thought it would be cool to launch a podcast on her birthday and then forgot that it would mean years of anniversary episodes on or around my birthday. So that's why we do episodes like this, because especially this year, I'm turning 35, which is fucking bananas, and I just want some time off. So send me your questions or comments or favorite moments or episodes, will you? Um, You can submit them at mythsbaby.com slash questions. A link is in the episode's description. Please do that before the 13th, so it's like a couple days after this episode airs, so that I can get everything recorded in time. Thank you. Back to our girl Aphrodite, or rather... Inanna slash Ishtar and Astarte. It's come up in passing often in conversations, but there are lots of fascinating theories on Aphrodite's Eastern origins, her possible connections to even more ancient goddesses like the Phoenician goddess Astarte and the Mesopotamian goddesses Inanna slash Ishtar. This isn't a purely modern idea either, nor is it something that anyone is like entirely certain of, but it is something that the ancient people were also theorizing about and aware of. They knew where she may have come from, which I just think really adds to the intrigue of this whole thing. Like the quote I read at the top of this episode, that's a section from Herodotus's histories. I did include confusing geography, obviously modern boundaries you know, don't align with the ancient world. So we have Syria being also Palestine. That whole region was just a sort of Syrian, Palestinian, Phoenician. Don't try to think about it too hard. The point is that was Herodotus, who is called the father of history. He's one of the first recorded historians in that it was his his intent to tell the history of the region. He traveled around, he talked to people, and he recorded what they told him. 
We don't trust him completely. That would be wild as he's had some truly bizarre stuff, but he is a great indicator of general ideas and attitudes of the time of the people who were in certain regions, the existence in this case of a temple of Aphrodite Urania in ancient Phoenicia slash Syria slash Palestine, which he claims is the oldest temple of Aphrodite that existed, older even than those on Cyprus. Of course, we also get the bonus connections to the idea of trans-Aphrodite that Yentl mentioned in our recent episode, and maybe even a connection to the Scythian people as the Amazon warrior women. There's lots going on in that section, but we're interested in that temple to Aphrodite far, far, far from the Greek mainland in Phoenicia. But more often than not, when we think of Greek myth, we think about it on its own, without any ties to the world that existed around it. Like, that's something that I think often gets sidelined in the discussion of Greek mythology, at least when you're outside of academia or my show, because I've now become obsessed with it. But it's arguably one of the most famous Western mythologies, if not, if not the number one, you know, particularly in pop culture. Greek mythology is enormous. And so it ends up seeming to exist on its own in this vacuum, like the ancient Greeks did it first, like they originated all of those ideas of their gods and goddesses and petty drama. Like it all just burst from them and suddenly was what we all know and love as Greek mythology. And well, that couldn't be further from the truth. This is episode 219, Wandering Across the Ancient World, the Mesopotamian and Phoenician Origins of Aphrodite. I often wonder what the ancient Greek people would say if they saw what the modern Western world has done with their mythology. They'd be baffled, certainly. They'd be blown away. They'd be confused. But one thing I think would be a very glaring issue for them even would be this idea of supremacy, this idea that they did it first and that they did it best. Like, sure, the ancient Greek people almost certainly held on to a lot of things that they did first or that they did best. And rightly so. They were an incredibly proud ancient people and They deserved it. But there are so many things that just do not fit into that criteria. And just like their gods and their mythology is one of them. Of course, that doesn't stop me from uh, loving the absolute fuck out of it or it being absolutely my favorite thing in the world. No question. We can love it. We can love Greek mythology. We can revere it. We can obsess over it while also talking about how a lot of it originated elsewhere about how they didn't do it first and how the idea that they were the origin of culture or civilization is simply racist rewriting of history, whether we mean it to be or not. But before we get too deep into these Eastern goddesses and how they influenced Aphrodite right from the beginning, let's look at what she represents in Greek mythology, how she came to be according to the mythos itself, because it's relevant. Aphrodite is, of course, the Greek goddess of love and beauty, pleasure, procreation, and sexual desire. 
She is fascinating and unique amongst the Olympian goddesses and even the Greek goddesses broadly. At least she's unique when it comes to sex. In that, well, she had it on her terms. And she had a lot of it. And almost none of it had a negative connotation. Unlike so many stories of sex in the ancient world where a man forces a woman or a woman is ruined by it, whatever the reasons might be, more often than not, there are negative associations for the woman. Not so with Aphrodite, and gods is that what makes her so special and so important. Similarly, Aphrodite was, more often than not, depicted naked, something that wasn't true for most other female figures. Not to say they weren't ever shown naked, but my understanding is that Aphrodite is certainly the most naked of goddesses, and not only does that directly align to her status as goddess of sex, but also her unique ability to control her own life when it comes to sex. She had freedom in a way that few, if any, other women had. You know, I hadn't quite realized just how much I talk about sex on this podcast until I got that review that I mentioned the other week, like how someone was angry about this sexy content. I mean, I know it's all the gods wanted to do, but I hadn't quite clocked just how much I then talk about it. Anyway, Greek myth is all about sex, so you best be ready to face that fact if you want to listen. But I digress. According to Hesiod's Theogony, I hope you all will remember... (laughs) That Aphrodite has my all-time favorite origin story and one of the best phrases that I personally have ever coined on this podcast. According to that origin, Aphrodite is born from none other than the castration foam that erupted from the sea when Kronos threw his father Uranus's castrated parts into the Mediterranean. From that, we were gifted with Aphrodite. She was born often on a shell that then becomes a symbol of her from the sea itself, and the castration foam within it. This origin also makes her older than the other Olympians. Older even than Zeus. And that's going to become important. Alternatively, from Homer's Iliad and other sources that likely followed Homer's version, she's the daughter of Zeus and a titan goddess named Dione. And frankly, that is far, far less interesting, so I always ignore it in favor of the castration foam. But... In Dione's defense, we her existence is something that I haven't talked nearly enough about. She's a Titan goddess whose name basically means the divine one. Like, it's the feminine form of Zeus, or rather Dios, another name that essentially refers to Zeus as the divine ruler. So she's more important than she sounds, and more important than the stories really give her credit for. Instead, she falls into the background, becomes like just another of Zeus's women. But she's even associated with his oracle at Dodona. Now, ultimately, this is still connected to her being a divine ruler, like a female Zeus. But because she doesn't really figure into stories, she just totally gets forgotten. In terms of her name and what she represented, though, she is a very appropriate mother for a goddess like Aphrodite. All the same, though, I much prefer her castration foam origins um, that not only make her like older than Zeus but explicitly unrelated to him in any way. And I find that personally very, very satisfying. Not to mention, I could use the phrase castration foam for the rest of my life and be perfectly happy. Her castration foam origins, too, provide a more explicit relationship to the Eastern goddesses that we are most concerned with. Because that castration foam, as you might remember, (laughs) erupted just off the island of Cyprus. 
far off in the southeast of the Mediterranean, far from the Greek mainland, and very, very close to ancient Phoenicia. Which leads me to some important context to tuck inside your brains if you're not already familiar. When I'm talking about the ancient civilization of Mesopotamia and Phoenicia, I'm talking about modern regions of much of Iraq when it comes to Mesopotamia, um, a word that I only recently clued in to its Greek meaning, which is just between rivers, meaning the Tigris and the Euphrates. Anyway, I love it. Um, and Phoenicia, which was a region that spans a lot of modern countries, so it's kind of difficult to define. It's most often described as the Levant, but there's lots of both ancient and modern Palestine and Lebanon, Syria, and Israel kind of all formed what we're going to call Phoenicia. And that's a real generalization, but it's necessary. <laughs> but first, Aphrodite's origins on Cyprus, which unsurprisingly also had ties to Phoenicia. For all that Aphrodite's parentage differs between the two versions that I mentioned, her association with Cyprus in the far reaches of the ancient Greek world does not differ at all. Aphrodite's two most common alternate names are Cyprus and Kythera. And yes, I recognize it's confusing to pronounce the country and island with a soft C, Cyprus, and her name with a hard Cyprus. They are the same word. The latter is far more accurate in the ancient Greek, but I am very English and thus Cyprus. Cyprus is Aphrodite, Aphrodite is Cyprus. In Hesiod, it's where she's born. In Homer, it's where she spends her time. It's where she beautifies herself in the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite before she flits off to flirt with Anchises and make baby Aeneas. And it's where she runs off in the Odyssey after her husband catches her and Ares in that, you know, pesky net. Even when we call Aphrodite by her other common name, Kytheria, it has connections to Cyprus. See, Kytheria comes from her association with the island of Kythera, which is just south of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So it's very close to the Greek mainland, comparatively. But even still, when we talk about her association with that island, it's basically all connected to the idea that, yes, she started out on Cyprus, and then she traveled to Kythera. And even when Herodotus mentions Kythera being sacred to Aphrodite and the resulting temple there, he says specifically that the Phoenicians built that temple. So while Kithara is important to her cult and to her as a goddess generally, even still we have these connections not only to Cyprus, but to the Phoenicians directly. And as I've already said and again hinted at, one of the theories is those origins on Cyprus are pretty convincingly, if you ask me, linked to these earlier Eastern goddesses. Inanna slash Ishtar, and even more convincingly, Astarte of Phoenicia. And this is where I have to emphasize that I won't be pretending that I know enough about these cultures or goddesses to speak with any authority. I want to give you the vaguest understanding so that you can understand their links to Aphrodite, but I'm not prepared to talk about them as goddesses unto themselves. I would love to, but I am 
not the right person for that. I would love to have an expert on to discuss either of them. I just don't know nearly enough about the ancient sources to talk with any kind of authority, nor would I even know how to begin becoming an authority. Hence, Aphrodite is key here, because I certainly do know how to research Greek divinities. But first, let's look at Mesopotamia. I've been using the two names for the goddess, Inanna and Ishtar, a goddess of love and war, sex and fertility. These are two names for the same goddess, essentially. My very cursory understanding is that Inanna is an older name because the Mesopotamians were around for ages and they changed quite a bit in that time. Also, Mesopotamia refers to a broader area of sort of shared culture, kind of like the Greek world, I think. Um, so it seems like the later civilizations like the Assyrians and Babylonians, which I think are still kind of generally referred to as Mesopotamia, called her Ishtar, whereas the earlier ones like the Sumerians called her Inanna. At least for a while. That's, I think that's right. Enough. <laughs> Regardless, I'm going to keep saying Inanna Ishtar because it's best. It just best describes who we are talking about. The Mesopotamians were some of the earliest people in the region and kind of everywhere and gave us so many of the world's first everything. They were some of the earliest people on the planet to do like, I mean, honestly, everything that mattered when it came to, you know, like human evolution. Maybe that's a bold statement. I'm not an expert on Mesopotamia. I'm just trying to give you what is necessary. And that frankly stresses me out because I've become obsessed with nuance and accuracy and I can't do that here because I don't know how, but this is, this is what I've gathered and what is necessary for you to know. The point really is that this goddess, along with the people who worshipped her, were some of the earliest cultures ever. <laughs> Astarte, meanwhile... And that is her Hellenized name, I should say, because I'm far more comfortable pronouncing Greek words than I am Phoenician. Apologies. Astarte was, well, Phoenician. She was part of the Canaanite pantheon of gods worshipped by those people and the Phoenicians. And well, again, based on my limited knowledge, it seems that what she was the goddess of is, is not entirely certain because she was worshipped so long ago and for so long and in so many regions by many groups, it varies. Sometimes she's a goddess of fertility, sex, beauty, and war, very similar to Inanna. And sometimes, perhaps, she's not a fertility goddess at all. I won't try to pretend I understand it, because again, it's just not fair to the ancient people. I would absolutely love to have an expert on to talk about these people. For now, what matters are these vague associations, because they're going to lend themselves to Aphrodite. That, and it seems possible that on top of having these very similar associations, and this is my favorite, all three goddesses seem also to have been associated with the planet Venus. That's one of the things I will never get over. How these three cultures, which were pretty far away from one another in the grand scheme of the region at the time, and then the Romans do it too when they come along, they all developed goddesses associated with love and sex and this singular planet, Venus. Of course, they're interconnected in ways that we're about to talk about, but still, something about aligning her with like a random star they saw in the sky just fascinates me to no end. We're also talking like 2,000 years worth of people here. Think about that. Anyway. So aside from these associations with love, sex, and beauty, and the planet Venus, like what is the evidence that Aphrodite is influenced by these Eastern goddesses?
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melody. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty System for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. is a topic that is not at all certain it's theories and ideas developed by people whose entire careers hinge on these topics so i won't pretend that i can give you even a fraction of what exists on it but i want to talk about the fact that it is a theory and a pretty convincing one and it's just fascinating to have these ties to the east so i'm doing what i can with it this kind of thing will never be certain because what we have to remember is not only the time period when this was happening but also the amount of time that comes with developments like this It's often like at least hundreds of years, if not, like I was saying, you know, 2000 years worth of history of people. (laughs) 
generations of people whose beliefs and cult practices like change slowly over time. They evolve and shift and they develop as the people develop as a culture. On Cyprus, things start with figurines. They're women or they're bird-faced women. They're cool. You can Google them. They're goddess figurines, but we don't know who they were explicitly meant to be, if such an early goddess even had a name. But it, as time goes on and the people travel, as the people from the East interact with the people that will become the Greeks or the Cypriots, these people shift and change. Phoenicians bring Astarte to the shores of Cyprus, and whether it's explicitly intentional or not, the Cypriots become influenced by this goddess, eventually worshipping her in their own way. And then as the Greek culture evolves, grows, and changes, she becomes a part of it. She slowly becomes Hellenized, becomes a goddess who can fit amongst the Olympians. Now, this is all very generalized, very simplified, because, gods, if I didn't already think this was a complicated topic, like, trying to distill everything I've read into something comprehensible to you all is not easy. While Aphrodite does become Hellenized, there are lots of things about her that remain similar to the goddesses of the East who influenced her, who she might have started out as entirely. It's impossible to say whether she began as explicitly Astarte or Inanna and then like that exact goddess became Hellenized or if it was more of like a melding of cultures influencing and developing of like a new goddess who who simply resembled the others and then she too became Hellenized. Regardless, there are elements of Aphrodite that not only connect her to the East, but they're also some of her more unique aspects and the reasons that I personally find her to be the most interesting of Greek goddesses. Aphrodite is usually depicted nude, like I was saying, and, and this is something that some argue is explicitly tied to these Eastern goddesses. As I mentioned earlier, nudity isn't as common amongst the Olympian goddesses. So is Aphrodite's explicit nudity tied only to her role as a goddess of sex or to her origins in a culture that was more accepting of nudity in their deities? Or is it some combination of the two? According to Monica Carino's book, some scholars have linked her even more directly, correlating her more aggressive sexual aspects with Ishtar, or connecting stories like the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, where Aphrodite flits off to seduce Anchises, only to have him turn her down, at least briefly, um, with the story of Ishtar and Gilgamesh, where a similar refusal happens. Or they link Aphrodite's epithet, the one used by Herodotus in the quote that I read earlier, Urania, heavenly. They link it to the role of Inanna slash Ishtar and Astarte as queens of heaven. Aphrodite isn't a queen of heaven, but she is often described as heavenly, Urania, and perhaps that's close enough to make the connection. Another interesting aspect to this Near Eastern argument is the lack of Aphrodite in the earliest of Greek sources. Again, this is coming from the Carino book, which is just called Aphrodite. Though I'll point out that she doesn't actually seem to provide an opinion on these theories. She just details the arguments others make. And it was a very helpful book. <laughs> the earliest writings from the cultures that would then become the ancient Greece that we know, the Mycenaeans and the Minoans, come in the form of Linear B and Linear A. 
Linear A, of course, still hasn't been translated. Ugh. It was found in the Minoan civilization, originating on Crete and spreading to many of the islands. Meanwhile, the Mycenaean language of Linear B, I shouldn't say language, it's more of just like a writing structure. Um, that too is, is sort of a generalized, I should say, because the, the Mycenaean spread and so did Linear B. But it's all we need for now. The point is that Linear B includes references to a number of gods that we now know by their Greek names. People like Zeus, Hera, Hermes, Artemis, and Athena. Their names are, are different in the Linear B, not least because Linear B is like symbols, but we know that they would go on to become those gods. And Aphrodite, of course, is totally absent from Linear B. The time period in between the Mycenaeans in the Bronze Age and the Archaic period where most of our early mythological sources are coming from and where the Greek language, the ancient Greek language is coming from, is enormous. There are centuries in between, often called the Dark Ages for their minimal sourcing, but more accurately, they're called the Early Iron Ages. They're not dark. Regardless, the language changed. In the Archaic period, we have this full-blown Greek language that now exists the first alphabet-based writing system on the mainland in Greece, and Linear B is no longer used. So the argument is that somewhere in that time is when Aphrodite, as a concept, a goddess, made her way from Asia to Greece. But of course, first, she landed on Cyprus. Carino synthesizes the archaeological evidence on Cyprus really smoothly, so I'm just going to read her words, though slightly condensed. Quote, the archaeological evidence indicates that an eroticized female divinity emerged on Cyprus in the late Bronze Age. The divinity evolved out of an indigenous Cypriot tradition of female iconography, which combined with an imported nude female slash goddess tradition from Syria in the 15th century BCE. During the Dark Ages that followed the fall of the Bronze Age, this eroticized divinity traveled from Cyprus to the Aegean, first to, to Crete, and eventually to the Greek mainland. So to put it very simply and, and lacking in all nuance, that's why I quoted her earlier, but please don't quote me on this. <laughs> I just want to make it clear because it's fucking fascinating. The idea is that this erotic nude figure of an unnamed goddess came to Cyprus from Syria in the Bronze Age. Syria being Phoenicia in this case, when those Linear B lists are, are detailing gods like Zeus and Hera on the mainland, so Aphrodite isn't there. And then through Cyprus and its close vicinity and connections with the Asian continent, this naked goddess is likely connected with Astarte through the Phoenicians that are just across the water from Cyprus, and likely Inanna slash Ishtar too, who's further inland but a very long-standing goddess in the region. And then over time, as the Greek world solidifies into what we will know as the Iron Age and the Archaic period, this goddess becomes what we know of as Aphrodite. But she retains things from the East, like being depicted naked and proud of it, and having these stories like the hymn with Anchises, which might connect specifically to Eastern existing Eastern traditions and beyond. Of course, one thing that gets lost is her being explicitly a goddess of war, which is really interesting. Like, Inanna slash Ishtar and Astarte, they're goddesses of love and sex and also war. And yet, 
The Greeks seem to solve this by shacking her up with Ares, not only the god of war, but himself someone who's associated with the, the slightly more eastern region, than Greece at least, of Thrace. And if we're to understand that Athena existed in Linear B, and if in that period she was also associated with war, it makes a lot of sense to take that away from Aphrodite, but then to still have her associated with Ares, who is inherently the passionate side of war. The side of war that is far more interconnected with love and sex and passion. It, I mean, it's so hard to synthesize and and explain, um, but it's just so fascinating. So I want to leave you today with a, another quote from Herodotus about Aphrodite and her ties to the East. It's not a kind quote, mind you. Herodotus is definitely judging the Babylonians that he's about to speak of. uh, But gods, if it isn't fascinating and entertaining enough for that not to matter. Quote, The foulest Babylonian custom is that which compels every woman of the land to sit in the temple of Aphrodite and have intercourse with some stranger once in her life. There is a custom like this in some parts of Cyprus. So yeah, at least according to Herodotus, there was a tradition in Babylonian temples to Aphrodite where women just got to go to a temple and like fuck strangers. And gods, if that doesn't sound exactly like what Aphrodite would have wanted women to do. Live a little. Have sex with anyone, anytime. Might as well be Aphrodite's motto. And at least as I see it, it seems awfully likely that such sexual freedoms stem from her Eastern origins and not her Hellenic ones. Because gods, if that isn't what makes Aphrodite unique amongst the Hellenic goddesses. She did whatever the fuck she wanted when it came to sex. And she was the only one who got to do that without consequences, without shame, without even a lick of remorse. Love that for her. Oh, nerds, thank you all for listening to my attempt at looking at these Near Eastern goddesses, um, but mainly my desire to examine the origins of Aphrodite. I recognize that that was confusing. It's hard when it's not a story and when it's just me and when I'm just trying to like throw information at you. But I also just really think that it's worth it. I think some people might listen to an episode like this and get angry uh, with me for like being so uneducated about these goddesses too. And I just want to look at why I, I chose to go about it this way by being like really upfront about my ignorance. It's not that I don't want to learn about them. I would love to. It's that because of my background in ancient Greek sources, I know that without guidance from someone who knows the Mesopotamians and Phoenicians better than me, like I would end up finding sources that are primarily Greek in nature, if I could find them at all, or or probably just like a bunch of, of things written a while ago by old white men. And I don't think it's fair to the ancient people who worship these goddesses or the modern people who are native to those regions now. It's not fair to them that I would go about their mythology like that. It's also why I don't dive into other mythologies broadly, despite the fact that I know a lot of you listeners would love me to, but my passion and my knowledge lie in Greek mythology, and that's what makes my show what it is. And while the ancient Mediterranean generally is my fascination, I just don't know enough about the other regions and the people to to do them justice. And while, like I said, I would love to learn, I also don't have the capacity to learn about an entire foreign ancient culture and mythology for 
one episode of a podcast that I do weekly. It's just not feasible. That's why I stick with what I know. But in any case, ultimately, what I'm saying is I would much rather provide you all with the bare minimum details that I could learn about these Eastern origins and at least share that concept with you, you know, rather than learning a bunch of random things that I can't confirm or even be certain there aren't, you know, a complete Western bias. Who knows what else, you know? So if I'm ever going to talk about these goddesses in detail, it's going to be done right. I'm going to do them justice. And ideally, that is with an expert that's just going to come on and tell us all everything. Now, as always, let's finish with a reading of a five-star review by one of you amazing listeners. Consider leaving me a five-star review, would you? Maybe I'll read it at the end of an episode. And also, it'll just offset the people who click on a podcast that has a little explicit rating and then leave me a bad review because I swear or because I talk about sex in a Greek mythology podcast. You know, I just... Anyway, I find it really funny to at least point those people out. But, you know, maybe leave me a review um, also because it helps and it makes me really happy. This one comes from a user called Fight Dad Steve from Canada. Great name, Steve. Fantastic show. I love this show. Have always been a fan of Greek mythology and Liv fills in so much more that I didn't know. As a man who married a strong, intelligent woman and has a daughter whom I believe should have every opportunity our son does, I appreciate the other foundational difference between this show and many others. That's right. As a man, I really appreciate the strong feminist voice that this show brings. There are occasions where some of Liv's asides have pointed out a flaw in my understanding of our world today or a misstep in my own thinking, and it's good to grow as a person. It's also good to hear that things are called out for what they are. If you can't draw parallels between modern day and some of the issues pointed out in the show, maybe grow some imagination. Or perspective, maybe? Thanks, Liv. I appreciate you. That would make me really happy... Every once in a while, I get these reviews that really synthesize exactly what I am trying to do and why I think my approach to mythology is important, particularly compared to the other big mythology shows that still exist out there. And I'm really glad when people get it. And Steve got it. He got it. Thank you. Let's talk about Myth Davy is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things. From running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research and helping me with everything. <laughs> the podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Listen to the podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. You know, sometimes I think I could like record one of those and just play it the same one every time. And then I think that's just boring. I might as well make it weird every time. Thank you all. I am Liv. Gods, I love this shit. Mainly Aphrodite because she's fucking wild and cool. And I mean, even more cool are her Eastern goddess origins of Inanna, Ishtar, Astarte. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your your perfect home sweet home. Okay. 
I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melody. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty System for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com.